0: on now, not to a study of a biblical book, but a topic about the Bible itself. Can we trust the Bible? Why can we trust the Bible? What's involved in all of the things we say we believe about this wonderful book that we call inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative? Why is it those things, and what do those things mean? We're going to spend a number of weeks, and last week I talk to you just by way of very brief introduction about a crisis of biblical authority that has certainly been among us for about a century and a half, at least until the late 19th century, uh, beginning then and moving on with increasing venom and difficulty through the 20th century into the 21st. We're going to try to look at a number of topics together. Today we're still looking at very foundational things. We want to look at the fact that the true God is a speaking God, a communicating God. And I choose to direct you to Psalm 19, a very obvious text on this subject. We'll look at this today. I'm also going to read, if you want to stick your finger in, Isaiah 44. I'm going to read a secondary passage there in Isaiah 44. But first, Psalm 19. This is David writing, like a strong man runs his course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, I turn to Isaiah quickly, and I'm going to read. I'm breaking in on something here in order not to read quite as much. I'm going to start in the middle of a thought in Isaiah 44:14, where Isaiah is picturing a man doing something, and you'll pick it up what he's saying. Isaiah 44:14. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar in the rain, nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread and also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, and over half he eats meat and roasts it and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, "'Aha, I am warm!' I have seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. This too is the word of God. We ask him to make it clear to us today what it's saying to us. The overall question that we're asking in this series of messages in the next few months could be summarized in just four words. Is the Bible true? And I'm not asking whether there is some truth found in the Bible. Certainly there is. Much the way we would find truth in all kinds of works of literature. You read Pride and Prejudice or The Lord of the Rings or Moby Dick and you'll find pieces of truth even in works of fiction. You can find truth certainly in an engineering manual or a math textbook or a science book. Aspects of truth can be found in many kinds of resources. But I'm asking not are there pieces of truth, but is there complete truth with a capital T in the Word of God? Is the Bible so trustworthy in all it teaches that we can consider it as a divinely created scale on which we could put anything and measure it, weigh it, evaluate it, see if it is calibrated so that it tells the truth. Is the Bible such a measurement? Original apostles like Paul or John wrote as eyewitnesses of what Second Corinthians says was the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, There are many things written down as a historical record or an observation of something that took place. I'm sure this couldn't possibly apply to any of you, but if you were pulled over on Route 30 for going 95 miles an hour, uh, something would be written up. A policeman would have a form in, I don't know if it would be triplicate or quadruplicate that would record who you are and your license plate and the speed you were going, and eventually it would lead to you finding out that it would cost you a lot of money to go 95 miles an hour on Route 30 and that would be filed as a factual report of something that happened, an incident and then it would be forgotten but as a historical factual report the word of God is far more than some policeman's accident report that only deals with something of a few moments in in time it is actually a living record of the presence and the work of God on this earth. 1 John 1 3 says this, That which we have seen, said John, he was writing as an observer, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You hear what He's saying? He was writing not just so that He could establish a bond with those who would read what he wrote as a relative might send a greeting to another relative. No, he's saying it's more than that. It's so that we would have fellowship with God himself. The apostle was claiming there in 1 John that the Bible is able as a living word to literally join us in a unique relation to God as we encounter him there in the Word. Last week, I said to you that you could consider the Bible to be not like a painting of the Swiss Alps on the wall of your house, but rather like a window in the wall of your house through which you look to see the Swiss Alps. You see living reality that you cannot see any other way. We could say also that the Bible's like a telescope, bringing far-off things close to our, for our observation, or like a microscope, taking very small things and enlarging them so that we can see them and have a depth of field as we understood them. The Bible brings things before our understanding, the truth about God, about his character, his actions in in the world, about Christ, about our own heart, about human society, about the natural realm, about the flow of history, morality, the path to heaven, on and on. And the Bible speaks, capital T, TRUTH when it talks on these subjects. Now, we're going to need a lot of weeks to talk about, and I need discernment to know just how much to include and and not go on so much at such length and depth that it really puts you all to sleep. But we do need to look at a lot of topics, like what is inspiration? Inspiration. What do we mean when we say the Bible is infallible or inerrant? What about alleged mistakes and contradictions? You know, surely you have a friend that says, oh, the Bible, everybody knows it's full of contradictions. Really, which one did you have in mind? That stops them dead every time because they don't know what they're talking about. We will need a long time to talk about all the related subjects, but today we deal with something very basic and very fundamental, and that is in the title of this message, The true God is a speaking God. The true God is a communicator, an effective communicator who desires to reveal himself, open himself up, and make himself known to mankind whom he created in the first place to have fellowship with him. We broke the fellowship. And God says, I really want that fellowship back. And so I'm going to make myself known so that you can come to me in faith and know me. And knowing me, you'll receive something wonderful, eternal life. The true God speaks. He speaks in nature. He speaks in spider webs and lions and tornadoes and Mount Everest and oceans and all kinds of wonderful things. And he speaks in his word. And there's no more perfect place that illustrates this twofold speaking of God in what the theologian calls both general revelation, or things seen in the creation, and special revelation in what is in his word than Psalm 19. David perfectly captured that twofold manner of God speaking. So I ask us to look here today, and there's a very natural division to this text that I read, verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19 tell us the true God speaks in the natural creation. The theologian calls this general revelation. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The sky above declares His handiwork. Day by day, it pours out speech, and nature's voice goes out through the whole earth. I think it was Thursday this past week that the weatherman said if you go outside at a particular time of night and look up, you were going to see the Perseid meteor shower. Some 200 meteors, they said, might be visible. I understand the visibility was poor as it turned out, but how many of you looked? A few hands. Glad a few of you did. Most of us sat in our air-conditioned box and said, I'm not going out there. It's still hot. In other words, we're not even that interested in the wonders of this world, right? I didn't go out. I remember in elementary science class, I think it was around fifth grade, one day the teacher was trying to impress a particular lesson and he got across rather well to me at least. He said, bring a notebook and a pencil. And he gave each of us a little trowel and we went out to a a grassy meadow. It wasn't just lawn, it was actually higher grass near the school, and he said, all right, split up so that you're five, six feet away from each other. Sit down and define for yourself with the edge of the trowel a one-foot square patch of ground, one foot on each side. Most kids could do that, all right, even in in fifth grade. And, And he said, now, I want you to take your pad and your pencil and I want you to make observations. You're scientists. I want you to write down every different kind of grass that you see how many kinds of weeds you see, how many bugs you see. What's in that one-foot square? We all thought this was crazy. You know, 10-year-olds saying, what's wrong with this teacher? And uh, I'll tell you what, it was a memorable exercise because he forced us. He said, don't look at the other kids. Look at your square and look closely. Part the grass, look. It was amazing how much stuff there was to write down. The longer you looked, the more you saw And then he said, take the trowel and kind of lift a layer of sod and see what's under there. What's going on under there? Worms, bugs, all kinds of strange things. And write down that. And, you know, we got a good lesson. We came away introduced to a word, ecosystem. A whole ecosystem of life was going on in one square foot of ordinary meadow grass. Wonders in God's creation all over the place. If you turn to Genesis 1, you learn something really important right at the beginning page of the Bible. You learn that the powerful speech of God was his creative act by which he made this world and and peopled it and populated it and caused it to grow. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. Genesis 1-6, God said, let there be an expanse above the waters. 1.9, God said, let dry land appear. One eleven, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And on, several more times. God said, God spoke. The limitless imagination of God, the God who can imagine in the same frame of reference an alligator and a caterpillar and some sea monster you and I have never even seen or witnessed that lives at the deepest part of the ocean. God spoke and those things came into existence. Now, Some people think that's absolutely folly. They have a much smarter idea. Material things, the planet, the universe just always was, and out of a worm, given enough time, you just wait and you get Albert Einstein. That one doesn't work for me. My faith doesn't stretch that far. It's by a divine decree, a unique command of God, that the universe powerfully came into being as a material realm. And God's tool for that was his word, the expression of his creative thought. Let this be. Hebrews 11.3 spells it out. It says the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The Rocky Mountains, the, an eagle, an atom, an ocean, the DNA of man and woman. These things were spoken by the command of Creator God. So in Psalm 19.2, David says that speech which originally formed creation didn't just happen once. Actually, it sounds like David's telling us it's still happening day to day. This speech pours out. God's creative work, is he's recreating, he's repopulating the earth all the time. It pours forth. In fact, there's a marvelous thing said in Hebrews 1.3. I mentioned 11.3 a moment ago. Hebrews 1.3 says Christ, listen to this, Christ upholds the entire universe by his word of power. It's God's speaking command that still is seen in the general revelation of the world that he's made. Well, you'd think we'd be terribly impressed we'd all say, wonderful, Let's, surely we can know God. We know all about his character. This world is all we need. Well, Romans chapter 1 speaks to that subject around verse 19 and following. It says, indeed, that God has made these things and man has this truth. Let's read there. What can be known, Romans 1, what can be known about God is plain because God has shown it. His invisible attributes, His power, His divine nature, those things at least we have clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. Great, we all know God. Well, it says so we're without excuse. Without excuse for what? Because we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're always trying to push that truth of God seen in his natural revelation back into a box and nail the lid down because we really don't want to know it for some reason. It seems to demand things of us. It seems to accuse us of of being unrighteous. And yet a splendid creation of marvelous works demands that behind it there is a great designer and power who brought these things into existence and he's greater than all the things that he made. Months ago, I suggested to you one time that you Google sometime Hubble Telescope. And Please don't do it right this moment. Listen to me instead. But Google Hubble Telescope and follow some of the things that are there. Unbelievable sights. Absolutely unbelievable. The galaxies, the star clusters, the formations that that telescope, it's like our universe, of course it was always there before, but we couldn't see it. And it's like 98% of our universe couldn't be seen before, and now it can be seen. And yet even all of it can't be seen yet. But God who made all that is greater than even the widest, deepest things that he's made. Every human being on earth has plenty of reason to marvel at God's handiwork in nature. Jonathan Edwards, before he was famous as a theologian of many deep thoughts and great sermons, wrote as an older teenager or probably college-age person. Some thought he wrote it at age 12, but probably more like 20, that he wrote an essay on spiders. And it was worthy of any natural scientist's effort, what Edwards wrote, just marveling at spiders and what they did and how they did it and how they created the beautiful webs and everything. We've got sunsets. Certainly you've watched, I hope you've watched a sunset sometime this summer. We travel to the lengths of the earth just to see where the best sunsets are. Do we learn anything from them? Other than something we can send, you know, hash mark sunset off to your friend or something? Do sunsets save us? Do beautiful mountain valleys spread out before us give us peace with God or forgiveness of sins? You know they don't. We go and see the artistry of God, which is greater artistry on the canvas of this world than anything Rembrandt or Monet or Degas or Van Gogh or anybody else ever painted. We take a flower, and there are thousands and millions of them, of course, all around us all the time, and some of you are great gardeners. You ever take one flower and just concentrate on it like I had to concentrate on that square of ground in fifth grade? Look at this. Who designed this? And there are 10,000 exactly like it. Look at it. Who made such a beautiful thing? We usually just sort of ignore all this and suppress the obvious display that's there. And you know what? No matter how much study we might pay to it or how much attention to nature or how good a scientist you ever become, you're going to find out that nothing in the wonderful creation of nature, while it reveals much about God as a designer, as a a powerful artist, nevertheless, it won't redeem you. It won't allow you to stand justified before the holy God on the final day of history. Nature's revelation is important, and we are held accountable if we ignore it, but by itself, it will not save And so secondly, we look at Psalm 19 again and see how David kind of turns on a dime there. Probably in your Bible, there's a white space between verse 6 and verse 7 showing you that there's a subject division, and he really turns a corner. Suddenly, he stops talking about nature, and he's talking about God's spoken word, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts, the commandments, the rules of the Lord. He's got a, n- a number of nouns there that describe God's written word, and he's marveling over that. And now David is suddenly saying God has spoken another way besides what he's done by his decrees in nature. He's called us by his word. We sang about it in our opening hymn, Isaac Watts. The heavens declare your glory, Lord. Great. Psalm 19, 1 to 6. In every star your wisdom shines. But then, Psalm 19.7, When our eyes behold your word, we read your name in fairer lines, said Watts. Just as the creative decree in Genesis 1 brought into being material things that did not exist before and that were wondrous and amazing, now the written word of God brings into our view and into our lives that which actually works the work of God in us and changes us, creates in us, something is born in us that was not there before, the life of God, the righteousness of Christ, justifying us as we in faith believe and trust in his resurrection for eternal life. So there's this other half of revelation. Now, this should speak instructively to some people that you probably know. I hope you're not this person yourself. If you are, I would urge you to think about it if you're the person who says, why, my only church pastor is the great out of doors. I can find God at my cabin up in Potter County. I can find God at the seashore. Oh, yes, I can even find him on the golf course, and that's what I need, and that's fine with me. I don't need your church every Sunday and your Bible lessons. Well, the sad thing is that Psalm 19 rebukes you. Psalm 19 says you're half right. You certainly can find God revealed in nature, and I hope when you're on the golf course you're actually marveling over that and praising God. I suspect you're not. But uh, the first half of God's intended revelation is not sufficient for all that you need. You need what the radio broadcaster that older folks remember, Paul Harvey, used to call all the time in his wonderful stories that he told on the radio, and he'd say, and now the rest of the story. You need the rest of the story that God has told in his word. Charles Spurgeon said, that man is wisest who reads both the book of this world and God's word book. They are two volumes of one intended work, and he said... You must learn to say, my father wrote both of them. You need both of them. Now, I want to raise a third point today that does not come from Psalm 19, and that's why I dipped into Isaiah 44. And I would say this is a a contrasting thing to the observation that the true God speaks. If we say the true God speaks, we ought to say the flip side, false gods are unable to speak. And that's shown very well in Isaiah 44. One of the most wonderful literary examples of satire in the Bible. Maybe you think satire's is uh, somehow unworthy of the Bible. The Bible would never speak in satire. Read Isaiah 44. There isn't a richer piece of satire anywhere in the Scripture than that passage through the prophet Isaiah. His main task there is to mock the idea of people worshiping any man-made object. And starting about Isaiah 44:15, he says a man cuts down a tree, good idea, build a fire. Warm yourself, roast your meat and your bread. Comfort yourself at the end of a weary day, get warm. Great. But then Isaiah 44:17 says the man takes the other half of the same log that he built his fire from and carves out a so-called god. And then he prays to it. And wonder of wonders, he says, deliver me. You are my God. And you say, what? What kind of nonsense is that? How can a log know you, care about you, love you, guide you, forgive you? And of course it cannot. What absolute folly. You're confusing a tree trunk and your firewood with your God. But the main characteristic being cited here, if you don't see it, is false gods cannot communicate. They cannot hear. They cannot think. They cannot respond. They cannot guide. They cannot answer prayer. Why would you trade the living true God who speaks both in his natural creation and his written word through inspired prophet and apostle for an idol that is actually a blockhead? Remember when the characters in Peanuts always called Charlie Brown a blockhead? Charlie Brown was a great intellectual compared to a log carved in the form of a man. In Isaiah 44, 6 to 8, the passage earlier that I didn't read this when I read to you, you might look at that if you have it open, 44, 6 to 8, God speaks through his prophet and he thunders a challenge there. He says, beside me there is no God who is like me, let him proclaim it. Let that God declare what is to come in the future. Is there a God beside me? You see, the one God who can communicate is waiting for and challenging some pretender to step up and speak. If you know the future, tell it. Let us know. If you have insights into the human behavior or can comfort and forgive and encourage Go ahead, try your hand, speak to us. The point is certainly being made that only this, the true God is a speaking God. Now, this doesn't mean that other religions made by man don't have in them some bits and pieces of things that are true. They do. Islam has bits and pieces of truth, good, wise things that might you know tell you to treat other people honorably or not lie or something, fine, that's true. But Islam is not the truth. Islam is an invention of a man who was dissatisfied with Christianity in the 600s who just said, we, we need another book, I'll write one, and it'll be the best book, it'll be better than that Bible the Christians have. Never mind it'll be based entirely on law, not on grace. Never mind that it won't portray the, Bi- the Bible's God. It'll portray the God that I tell people to look at. Bits and pieces of truth in the Quran, Sure. The truth? Absolutely not. Isaiah's true God is the one from on high whose powerful word created this universe and whose written word can actually miraculously and supernaturally change the human heart. I have heard... Literally hundreds. I have welcomed into... I'm not saying this as a boast. It's just to, to let you know I have the experience for what I say. As pastor of this church, we have received, I think, about 1,700 members since I've been here. Now They're not all still here, but that's how many we've received, and they've moved on or died. But that's a lot of testimonies I've listened to, is my point. I've listened to people tell me, how did you become a Christian? I've heard people say... I didn't have a church. I didn't have a pastor. All I had was a Bible, and I started reading it, and God wonderfully spoke to me and changed me and turned me to Christ. I've, I've heard that testimony. Nothing but a Bible and no guidance. This supernatural living Word took hold of people and changed them. I don't know if there are people that would say the Quran did that to them, I obviously haven't heard them say that so I won't deny there might not be such a person but I know the Quran does not have the supernatural quality of the word of God you put a substitute in the place of Jehovah God and you end up asking yourself the question of Isaiah 44:20 is there not a lie here in my right hand or i like a better another interpretation of that same sentence am i not clinging to a delusion As I close, I remind you that as we studied Job, two weeks ago, we came to a conclusion of that. Remember the basic plot line of Job, three men debating with Job, and finally a fourth, two, coming and giving him all their human wisdom until they were absolutely exhausted. My wife makes a comment at the end of the Olympic swimming. You know, they come out of the pool. They've just, the one where they had swum, what was it, 50 lengths, I think, of the pool. And, and you get out of the pool and a microphone in your face. Tell us how you feel. <laughs> how do you expect me to talk? Well, Job and his friends were absolutely exhausted after every form of so-called human wisdom had, had been exchanged. They were sitting there exhausted. What was the climax that then came in Job? Do you remember Job thirty-eight one? Then the Lord spoke to Job. Enough human discussion. The Lord spoke and humbled Job. And that was really the end of the discussion as God revealed himself. Folks, the Bible says in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, and we'll get to this text for a, an examination at a later time. Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, And it goes on to say, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And after making purification for sins, he, Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Aren't you glad that we can be sure of this? The God who speaks saved his best word for last. Father, I pray as we. Continue to look at this subject. We would never forget that you can do what no other God can possibly do. You speak. You reveal yourself. You make yourself known, and you desire to have us speak to you. Will you lead us more and more into a trust of this word that you have revealed, this wonderful record so varied, so different in all of its different forms? where you marvelously spoke through human pens to give us a knowledge of yourself in the face of Christ. Teach us to trust it and to live by it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.